Hello, and welcome to State of Crime. One state, two murders, lots of crime. Hi, Kaylin. Hi, how are you? Okay, we're getting straight to it. Because <laughs> she, I walked in the door, and that was one of the first things she says, is we are doing a Scott Riggs update. Because I'm mad, because she's got the tea, and she's not spilling the tea, and so I've had to wait, so we're not <laughs> waiting any longer. Go. Okay, so his Scott Riggs, his trial started on the 13th of February. Right. There was a mistrial declared. There was a very, very brief announcement made by our local newspaper, but there have been no details released as of yet. Yeah. So in the first day of his trial, Paula's husband testified, her brother testified, and a couple of the sheriffs had testified. And then they announced that the next date of trial was going to be a week from that day, which which was the 20th of February. And there wasn't really any updates as to what happened on that day. And then on Thursday, the 21st, we get the news that the judge had declared a mistrial. Why? So, what I was told from people who are close to the trial. Yes, her secret sources. Was that some of our investigators have mislabeled some of the evidence. Oh my gosh. No. Yeah. Something like, ah. Well, and then it was also said, but I don't think this has anything to do with the mistrial. So if you follow our discussion group on Facebook, someone had posted... The live tweets right. that the journalist was doing yes. that she had posted during the first day of trial. But those were supposedly okay because yes. she was very clear about that, that the judge had said no photography whatsoever, you know, no recording, but it was okay for her to yes. do this. She was very... Well, and they, they didn't say anything about no photography. They did say okay. as long, if it was cell phone photography, it was fine. Oh, which that's also interesting. I don't know. Did you go through and read all of the tweets? No. So Oh, yeah, I did read the tweets. I'm sorry. Yes, I did. So it was they did show they were showing evidence pictures, which they have to do because it's a trial, and they ended up calling a a break mm-hmm. in the trial so they could go talk in the chambers. And I guess that there were people worried about people taking pictures mm-hmm. of the picture right. of Paula's body. Aww. Which I don't see I don't see people actually doing that. And I do. Would... Oh, come on. Really? Yeah. Kaylin, you're you're far too sweet and naive. Know. You know people would do that. Yeah. They're horrible. But so that was a thing and the his family, I guess, was really upset that she was in there live tweeting, which she had gotten permission. Yeah, and I don't care what his family... I mean, I'm sorry. This is a public thing. I'm sorry. You want to support your family member, support your family member. This is how it goes. They are... You know, this is public knowledge. Everything that's said in that trial is going to be public knowledge. Yep. So get over it. But And it's not... They didn't have a gag order or anything. No, so it's exactly. not like their media wasn't allowed to nope. talk about anything. Mm-hmm. So they have no right to try... To be mad about it. No. I mean, they can be mad all they want, but it's not going to do anything. No. But it is a mistrial. Mm-hmm. Hopefully they'll get everything rectified and then we'll have a new trial whenever. They are announcing his new trial date on March 4th. Okay. 
and he will stay in jail until his next trial starts. Good. Yes. That was one thing that, because I, ta- I was talking with my mom about it, and I had told her, like, hey, I just found out that they declared mistrial today. And at first she was like, what does that mean as far as him getting out, as mm-hmm. far as the rest of his trial? And I was like, honestly, I don't know. He could get out, depending, but, like, probably not. Okay. Um, but they did say that he he'll stay in jail okay. until his new trial. It was also, uh, there have been other rumors that his trial will probably not start for about another year. Because there's another high-profile case that has to be taken care of first, which... I don't know if that's here in our county that's dealing with it because uh, the Idaho State Police is who is doing everything with Scott's case. So I don't know if it's another, if it's just like in Idaho or if it's like in our county, but... I don't know of any other high profile cases right here in the community. Yeah, not that I know of. But, (sighs) all right, I'm not going to say anything because I'll say things that aren't good and I will later regret but this is really frustrating it is very frustrating and it makes me angry it yeah it's I am a little more relieved because he will be staying in jail well unless he waits another year and then who knows I mean yeah do you know what I'm saying but yeah so well and also during the trial with the live tweets because I sadly had to work and wasn't able to go <laughs> that it was said that there were numerous bloods stains that never got tested which baffles me that like why if you see it there why aren't you testing it i don't know i'm biting my tongue i i want i want to give everyone here the benefit of the doubt but it's getting harder and harder to do and i initially had said to my mom i was like well i guess to an extent we kind of have to give him a break because not scott the investigators Mm -hmm. because We're in a small town where things like this don't happen. They don't really have a whole lot of experience with it. And then I remembered that the same day that they found her body, it got transferred over to the Idaho State Police. So, like, they should have a little more experience and they should know what they're doing more than our own city police Exactly. And so it's really, it's really frustrating. Well, and I'm just tired of that being an excuse. I mean, I'm a small town teacher, right? I don't get off the hook anymore with my students who have to take the same tests to get into the same colleges that the kids in Boise have to take. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, I just feel like you are hired to do a job. I understand you might not have the same amount of experience, but then you make sure when you don't know how to do something, you make sure you find out how to do that thing and you do the thing and you do the thing correctly, especially on something so important. But yeah. It's been a bad week for me in a lot of ways. <laughs> I and have so, been so it's cranky coming out. this week. Yeah. It's I, been a rough one. Well, I, I've had a couple weeks. You know, we talked about, we had a maybe possible sort of, well, I had some people fighting in front of my house a few weeks ago. She and turned was, into a crazy lady. <laughs> I, I think it was just my inner crazy lady was released. Yeah. That's always there. And I just have not been right ever since. I just yeah, have to I, say. This, so. whole, this whole week, for me, starting Monday, mm-hmm. was just a shit show. Yeah. Well, and then I took a quiz the other night because you know internet <laughs> quizzes are so valid and so true. As far as which Marvel character are you, and it turns out that I am, 
um, Dr. Banner, the Hulk, and that is pretty much dead on accurate. <laughs> I will never doubt internet quizzes again. So, yeah. So we're going to head from our case yep. to Pennsylvania. Yes. And actually, my case has a lot of, there's some reverberations with the Riggs case. You are going to be experiencing some of the same frustrations that we just expressed. Yay! Yay! <laughs> Um, and I, I've also broken out of my mold slightly. Instead of doing a historical case, I did one that's a little bit more recent. This actually happened in 1979. But one of the reasons I chose it when I was first perusing cases, there are some very fascinating ones historically, obviously, in Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania has <clears throat> a lot of history to it. But what caught my eye was as I was going through a list was we have another murderer who is also a teacher and then it got even crazier from there so just like my Florida case with the mass murderer uh mass shooter we we have another teacher murderer here and I'm starting to think maybe I shouldn't have said that they're as rare as I thought they were because <laughs> maybe they're not after all. <clears throat> so, like I said, and not only are the people involved teachers, but they were also English teachers. So, even, yeah, more, you. Yeah, even more interest for me. This case is, I, I feel like I say this every week. You know, this case is bonkers and, you know, well, they all are, they are. And I think that's just it. I, I think that's the appeal of true crime yeah. is, you know, we look at these things and we just find ourselves asking how, why, what, you know, just, it's, it's almost impossible for us to wrap our minds around right. like everything that they've done. It's hard yeah. to believe that we're the same species, you know, yeah. we just see what some of these people do. So, and this case in particular has been the basis for three separate books. Uh, one by Joseph Wamba, who's very well known for writing true crime. I hope I said his last name right. I probably didn't. I didn't. He's a former police officer who also writes true crime. And I believe he also does some fiction. And his particular book, um, which came out, I think, in 1987. Like I said, the case was 79. And he also became the basis for a TV miniseries, which I really want to find because it had an amazing cast. It had Peter Coyote and Stalker Channing and lots of pretty well-known names um, to older people. Shut up. I didn't know a single <laughs> name you just said. <laughs> so I'm opening my case on the 25th of June, 1979, when the naked and badly battered and chained body of 36-year-old Susan Reinert was found stuffed in the trunk of her car. She had been tortured. Like I said, her body had been wrapped in chains. And subsequent research found she had been killed with a very high dose of morphine hours after she had been tortured. Jeez. Her, she was inside the trunk of her car, like I said, echoing the Riggs case, in the parking lot of a Harrisburg hotel. Susan was divorced. She had two children, a daughter, Karen, who was 11, a son, Michael, who was 10. Her children were also missing. They had all last been seen, I believe, three days prior. There was quite a hailstorm, and people reported that they had seen them running from her house to a car on the street that was there to like pick them up for some reason, and they'd never been seen again. So, 
Susan Reinert was a teacher at a suburban Philadelphia high school called Upper Marion. Multiple sources described it as being one of the best high schools in Pennsylvania. This was a fairly wealthy area. Susan herself was quite wealthy, which I don't know what her husband had done. I'm assuming some of the wealth came from him, possibly an inheritance, because I can't imagine she had this much money as a teacher, even at a prestigious high school at this time. Teachers don't make money. No, not not like this. So, Well, her estate was valued at over a million dollars. So, like I said, there was... Some other source of income. <laughs> yeah. There, so. And there was nothing nefarious in her past. So, like I said, Susan, who was 36 at the time of her death, had been dating and had been telling people that she was engaged to a fellow English teacher at Upper Marion High School, 46 year old William Bradfield. And almost immediately, after her body was found, he became a suspect. Now, some of the sources that I looked at, some claimed that their affair began before she was divorced. Others claimed no, it was... And looking at the other little tiny bits of information I was able to find about her, and I really am sad that I didn't have time to read some of the books, and I put them on my reading list because I really want to know more about this case. Um, it seems to me more likely she was divorced when they started their affair. At, or at least maybe separated. Yeah, something, yeah. I, like I said, she just doesn't... But of course, you know, things happen. You, I don't want to get into that. But yeah. anyway, so one of the red flags that we should have had about William Bradfield is he was a huge fan of the poet Ezra Pound, who, by the way, was born here in Idaho, although he moved away when he, his family moved away when he was two. And those of you, if you don't know very much about Ezra Pound... Google him, look him up, you'll understand what I'm saying. And even though this was a very wealthy area, and, you know, the thought of a popular English teacher being murdered so brutally and stuffed in her car was pretty out of sorts, this community had already had a tragedy back in February of 1978 when... The daughter, the 24-year-old daughter of the principal at this high school, a man named J.C. Smith, had disappeared along with her 31-year-old husband. So they had been missing since February of 1978, but this case hadn't received as much attention. For one, they had been living with J.C. Smith, and he claimed that they had simply up and left for California. They were both heroin addicts who re- were receiving methadone treatment while they were living with him. However, the husband's family never believed that story. And we'll talk some more about that in a little bit. I feel like it's especially, you hear a lot of stories, especially in like the 60s and 70s of people just kind of up and going somewhere. Right. So, like, with the time period, it doesn't really seem too far-fetched. Right. But like I said, the one thing, you know, his parents, who also lived in the area, never bought the story. And I don't know how much interaction they had with their son, but we'll, we'll get to that in a moment. Um, so, Susan Reinert had been very open about her relationship with William Bradfield. She told everybody how much she loved him. She was very shy, and when you look at her, when you see pictures, she's very much your stereotypical 
little slightly nerdy English teacher with the big glasses and, you know, she's a small woman. One of the strange things about their relationship is, and you know, I mean, I teach at the high school, you went to the high school. Uh, granted, this is a smaller area, but everyone kind of knows everyone's business, at least to an extent. Yeah. And what's kind of strange about this case is that Bradfield seems to have consistently denied that they were ever involved, even though Susan was running around telling everybody that they were. And I'm not sure, you know, how that worked out. And the story gets stranger because it turns out Blaine Bradfield was already living with a woman. Oh, and not only was he living with a woman, he was dating at least two others that we know of, one of whom was a former student. Oh. So, yes. <laughs> so, okay. some strange things going on here. Now, apparently, like I said, Bradfield was, I don't know if he was just super good at keeping everybody unaware of each other. I don't know if some of them knew about others, but this is a, a strange, strange relationship. And besides denying that he was involved with Reinert, he apparently would tell friends and co-workers, like he would badmouth her and say kind of awful things about her. Even so, Reinert was completely devoted to him. So much so that she changed her will, as I said, and left her million-dollar-plus estate to him and him alone. She changed her school life insurance, been uh, designated to her brother and her minor children. She changed that solely into William Reinert's name, saying that he was her intended husband. And in addition, she took out a $730,000 life insurance policy, that also was in his name only. Of course. So he seems like a manipulative sleazeball who he's probably going to kill her. And he's making sure that he's got all his little ducks in a row to make sure he gets as much money from her as he possibly right. can. And hold on to that manipulation idea. Okay? Because that's going to be key here in just a moment. So, like I said, from the get-go when her body's found on the 25th of June, 1979, the police are looking at him and looking at him pretty strongly. I feel like they usually do when it comes to any time. Right. They always look at the significant other. Right, right. Or the spouse. Yes. It's just... Yeah. And so, even so, it took almost two years before they arrested him. And you've already kind of keyed into something important here. When they finally did arrest him, it was not... For the suspicion of murder. They arrested him for theft and more specifically theft by deception because it turned out that in addition to all these other financial changes and things that Susan had done on his behalf, he had also convinced her to withdraw $25,000 from her bank and invest it with him in what turned out to be a totally bogus investment. So the police were able to make a financial case against him, arrested him, got him in jail. This is where he does something that is just so crazy to me, but shows that he has some sort of narcissistic personality disorder, aside from all this other stuff that he had going on. 
while he's in jail after the police arrest him, that's when he files to collect the life insurance. And he does this just 72 hours before going on trial for the theft by deception charge. What? <laughs> what? Yeah, like I said, it's, <laughs> I need to see this miniseries. I need to read these books. So on the 3rd of August, 1981, he is found guilty of the theft by deception, and he's sentenced to two years in jail. And one of his other lovers, I don't know, possibly maybe she found out, you know what I mean, that he'd been four or five timing or whatever he'd been up to. Sleazeball. Yes. Anyway, she is one of the key witnesses. And it turns out she had actually helped him with this. She had taken the $25,000, put it into a safe deposit box, and had actually withdrawn it on the same day that Susan and her kids disappeared. And she had done all of this stuff under William Bradfield's direction. So she is also a sleazeball. But it doesn't seem like, she doesn't seem to know anything as far as about the appearance uh, or the murder or anything like that. There, I, I didn't ever see that she was implicated in any of that. Now, so did she know where the money had come from? It did not say that. Okay. So I took my sleazeball comment back just because there's not enough She may evidence. have known that. I don't know. But anyway, it just, whatever else was going on here, this William Bradfield character seems like he's very good at manipulating people. Mm -hmm. You know, very good at getting people to do things for him. So we have that. You know, we have this really reprehensible person sharing my profession, which I always hate. <laughs> hate it. He's not the only horribly reprehensible person working at this very wealthy, upper crusty kind of high school in suburban Pennsylvania. We need to come back to our principal whose daughter and son-in-law had gone missing in February of 1978. So J.C. Smith, the principal, is a former Army Reserve colonel. One of the sources that I read claimed that he was an Air Force colonel, but that really doesn't jive because when things wrap up here a little bit later, he's only 58, and that's not, you know what I'm saying, that doesn't quite jive with him have having, having had a full military, full-time career, and then having had enough time to become a high school principal and all of this. So I'm going to go with the Army Reserve story. And he has some very interesting nicknames that come out after he <laughs> is looked at a little more deeply. One of them was the Prince of Darkness. And people reported that he would go on rants on the intercom. And there were all kinds of crazy rumors floating around him. These turned out not to be so crazy. Because on the 19th of August, 1978, so just a few months after this disappearance, he is arrested at the Gateway Shopping Center in Chester County, Pennsylvania, after some people had called the police and said that they had seen a man carrying guns, wearing a hoodie, running up to a van. And so they called the cops for, you know, suspicious activity. And when they get there, they find him. He tries to act kind of innocent at first. They do a search of his Ford Granada, 
they find a hooded mask, several loaded handguns, a syringe with tranquilizing drugs in it, and then many other items which the police describe as burglary and robbery tools. J.C. Smith claims that he needed these items because people were always harassing him and that he just kept them. Okay, so <laughs> the hooded mask, people harassing you. People are probably harassing you because you're wearing a hooded mask. <laughs> Second, you don't need that many handguns. Mm -hmm. If you're going to carry, carry one. Right. You don't need multiple. Mm -hmm. And who needs tranquilizer for anything in a other syringe. Than, yeah. So. Like, nobody just carries around tranquil, tranquilizer with them. Like, what? Well, it gets better. So, the police also get a warrant, obviously, to search his home. They find drugs, got more guns, which, you know, whatever, but a sec security guard uniforms and badges, a whole lot of porn, much of it centered around bestiality, four gallons of nitric acid, and several thousand dollars worth of office equipment, which it later turns out had been stolen from the school, from Upper Marion High School. And I'm not sure exactly when this came out. So his daughter and son-in-law had disappeared back in February. Their welfare checks had continued to be cashed for six months after their disappearance. So even, I guess, after this arrest. And the son-in-law's parents were very suspicious of this, of course. I guess they found out somehow. And when this arrest happens, and I think the police looked a little bit more into this disappearance of these two people, they also, Jay Smith's story was that he, they just up and left for California, mm -hmm. right? And he keeps sticking to this, but it's starting to look, you know, a little bit more suspicious. And in fact, to this day, we have no idea what happened to these two people. What? They have, yeah, so... Yes. I don't know if we've ever said this on here, but I, and I know you don't like them either, I hate cold cases. Mm -hmm. I understand that they're interesting, but there's too many, first of all, there's not enough answers, and there's too many just like, maybe this happened. Right. There's too many theories. Well. I don't like theories. You're going to hate. I like facts. You're going to hate a lot more about this case. Fun. Because <laughs> that's one very large loose end that we have. And like I said, to this day, we have no idea what happened to them. So he is arrested. I'm assuming he lost his job as the principal or at least was put I on administrative so. leave or something. But anyway, um, with the uniforms that they found, mm -hmm. the police were able, able to link those to armed robberies that had happened at two local Sears stores where the, the robber had come in wearing a bank guard security uniform claiming he was there to check receipts and then robbed both of these stores. So, so March of 1979, again, just a few months before the disappearance of, or sorry, the murder of Susan and the disappearance of her children, he is on trial and who should testify on J.C. Smith's behalf and give him an alibi? No one other than his little English teacher who had worked with him at Upper Marion High School, 
William Bradfield. And apparently William tries to say, you know, that when the robberies or whatever happened, that they, they had been together. The jury doesn't buy it. Neither does anybody else. Smith is found guilty and he's sentenced two to five years in prison, although he is free on bail while filing appeals. So shortly, a few months after this trial is when the murder of Susan Reinert happens, her children disappear. And like we said, I'm kind of looping around here a little bit, I know, but it's the only way to get through this story. Police pretty much are suspect, you know, they are very suspicious of Bradfield. He is arrested and found guilty for the theft okay. charge, right? They don't arrest him for the murder of Susan until the 6th of April, 1983. So they're trying to put together a case, but there's very, very little physical evidence. And when they do charge him, they charge him with three counts of murder for Susan and her two children, and her two children who to this day have never been found. Oh, that makes me so mad. I knew it would. So, <sighs> and apparently sometime after the trial with J.C. Smith for the burglary and everything, Reinert had, a after testifying on his behalf and trying to give him an alibi, had started to spread the rumor that he was afraid of Smith, that he feared that Smith might try to kill Susan Reinert, but he never went to the police with these suspicions. Of course not, because it was Right. So his defense team at his trial tries to pin the three murders on J.C. Smith. And there is some evidence that was found back when they were searching Smith's house. They did find um, a strand of Susan's hair in his home. And underneath Susan's body in the trunk was a comb that supposedly was tied to his military unit, like one that they gave to people. I'm not sure exactly how that worked. But I guess they gave these to everybody. So, do you know what I mean? There was a lot of these floating yeah. around. And then there was another source, again, that I found that said that Susan had had, like, a green button of some sort and that it was found under the seat in Smith's car. Now, how likely is it that they were cohorts and did this together? Bingo! I so, win. <laughs> you did win. All right. So, on the 28th, of October of 1983, William Bradfield's trial wraps up. He is found guilty. Good. But he's not found guilty of murder. Of course not. He's found guilty of what you just leapt to. He's found guilty on three counts of conspiracy to commit murder. Ugh. And so that is the working theory that he and Smith made this plan Smith probably carried it out mm -hmm. because there was, again, another source that William Bradfield had a pretty good alibi for being somewhere else when the car was seen in front of the house picking up Susan and her two children. They did, there was a supposition that the kids had not originally been part of the murder plot, that they were just in the wrong place at the wrong time. But again, if the car went to her house to pick her up, that seems kind of odd to me. Yeah. At any rate... Even though it's conspiracy of murder, William Bradfield is given 
three consecutive life sentences. Oh, that makes me happy. Which he started serving at Greater, Greaterford Prison. While there, he tutored inmates and helped file appeals for them. And he died in January of 1998 at the age of 64 of a heart attack. Sweet. He never admitted anything. Of course not. Yes. And in 2009, around the time of the 30th anniversary of this murder, CNN ran a story, and I guess they do this periodically, because shortly after his death, there was a photograph found in his cell of what appears to be an unmarked grave. And a lot of people have theorized that that is probably where the children are buried. And I guess over the years, they've published this photo. You can find it online. People have given them tidbits of information, but they've never been able to find the, the exact location. We will also make sure that that, that photo is posted. Okay, yeah. And like I said, so you have Smith's daughter and her husband who are never found. You have Susan's children who are never found, which is a very frustrating part about this case. Mm -hmm. Buckle in, because it's about to get worse. Oh, no. So, J.C. Smith, as we said, has already been found guilty for armed robbery, mm -hmm. has his sentence, apparently his appeals failed because he was in jail, and on the 25th of June, 1985, okay. the sixth anniversary of Susan's murder, he is finally arrested for three counts of murder. Ooh. He takes the same route as Bradfield, where he tries to flip the blame onto Bradfield. He claims that Bradfield framed him. All right. Um, but there's other witnesses that come forward. One of them is a former police officer who was also in jail for robbery, who claimed that Smith confessed to him that he had committed these murders. And he is found guilty of three counts of murder. Okay. And sentenced to death. Sweet. At the age of 58. Sweet. Okay. Now, if our story ended here, you Sweet. might be a little happier and you but, might be okay with the cold case nature of this. But you like to torture me, so here we go. I do. So, <sighs> his attorneys immediately, you know, file appeals. And Christmas of 1989, he is taken off of death row because the Pennsylvania Supreme Court finds that the claims that his attorney made of prosecutorial misconduct were in fact true and valid, and he is taken off of death row. His attorneys then begin to argue he can't be retried for the same crime because that's double jeopardy, and the Pennsylvania Supreme Court agrees with them on that. And so in September of 1992, he is released from prison. Oh my gosh, that makes me so mad. And he spent the next several years suing lots of people and claiming his innocence. Among them, Joseph Wambaugh, because Joseph Wambaugh plays into how he was released from prison. And just do some research on that. It's kind of a long story that I don't... He's suing people to try to get as much money as he can. Well, possibly that, too. Um, he did write a book himself, which he self-published, that was like, I, I think they said it was like 432 pages. It was this big, long book about all the reasons why he was innocent, which nobody believes. And like I said, the parents of his son-in-law 
also to this day believe that he killed his own daughter and their son. He lives to the age of 80 and finally died in May of 2009, also of heart issues. And I knew that that would frustrate you so much because of all your feelings about the death penalty cases anyway. And both of these men died of natural causes. Mm. Neither one of them ever admitted guilt. And we have four people whose fates we still do not know for sure. I did love this though. When J.C. Smith died, Joseph Wamba, the author who had written the book, Echoes in the Darkness, this is one of the best lines I've ever read, and I love this so much. So he said in an email upon hearing of Smith's death, quote, I do not celebrate death of any man, but Satan does. A number one draft pick has finally arrived. Damn. <laughs> so... That is the story of the mainline murders in Pennsylvania. I don't think I've ever been so frustrated with one of your cases. I don't think I've ever been quite so frustrated with one of my cases either. I mean, I've had other ones, you know, like back with Lavinia where she's accused of being a serial killer and probably wasn't. You've never been more frustrated than with your KKK guy. Oh, that's true. Well, you know, but the thing with the KKK guy is at least at the end, there was the resolution. Do you know what I'm saying? There was some sort of justice. Yeah, the KKK case was so frustrating to me that it's just that typical story of somebody who has privilege and wealth and he's allowed to do really heinous things for far too long until he just does one thing that's just too heinous for people to accept anymore. And then they go after him. This case is frustrating to me on many levels because, again, both of these men, neither one of them should have been in education. And you can't tell me that there weren't people who knew about some of these pretty skeevy things that they were doing already. Do you know what I'm saying? But nothing was done. Yeah. And then the fact, of course, that Smith, you know, gets out of prison and you know, dies a free man and that we don't know what happened. I'm like you, you know how I hate cold cases as well. And in fact, especially, especially the children, you know, their father's still out there. He doesn't know what happened to them. I just, that, that breaks my heart. So it's a different level of frustration. Yeah. This one I would say is worse for me. Yeah. I don't think, I don't even think I was as frustrated with your KKK case Mm -mm. that mm, this just, it just makes me mad. Yeah. There's a lot of anger here. And Starting off as we did with (laughs) another case that's very frustrating right now. And yeah, I'm just tired of, I want life to be like a Marvel comic. I want the bad guys to get punished. I want the good guys to win. And it just seems like we're getting that less and less in fewer and fewer instances. And it makes me sad. Yeah. Adulting is hard. Yeah, it is. So... All right, so Thursday, we are going on to another Pennsylvania case. Yes. The case of? Charles Cullen. Ooh, so stay tuned. Check us out on Facebook, Instagram. I posted our first tweet. Did you? I did. Success. I Twittered. (laughs) Join our discussion group. Let us know what you think. Ask us questions. We have a Gmail at stateofcrimepodcast at gmail.com. See you next time. Thanks for listening.